0: Thank you, David. So yes, we we finished Isaiah, um,
1: and after after a three week what vacation and with Hezekiah, um, I actually had a joke so that we asked you guys to turn to the book of Hezekiah, and some and some of you kind of knew that it was, that was. We talked about actually having you turn to the book of Zephaniah and see if you were like, oh, are you pranking me again? But that's a real book, so I couldn't do that one to you. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue on. And this morning is going to be kind of a, of a history lesson um, just to get us set up for the next book. So if you like history, this will be great, but we're going to have some application at the end, hopefully. Um, we're going to be actually kicking off into the book of Ezra, And um, but it's going to take us a little bit to get there. We have a journey. So I was just, just warning you, there's going to be a lot of history here. We were in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah was speaking to Israel before Judah went into exile. And when you get to the book of Ezra, they're already coming back from exile. So we've got a bit of a gap that we need to fill. And I want to fill that with you this morning in kind of Cliff Notes format. So if you have a pen, you're going to be writing some things down here. The slides hopefully will be online. I'll try to put them uh, in with the sermon online um, as well for you. So as we've been studying the history of Israel, um, we've been kind of looking through the history of the kings of Israel. So we started with Saul and we looked at David and we went to Solomon and we've looked at different kings along the way and it's a great way to look at the history of Israel uh, from a certain point on you start out with Abraham obviously there weren't kings then and you go through seasons of judges and then you go into the kings uh, the book of the books of first and second chronicles actually do that for you so if you want to actually look at the history of Israel from the perspective of the kings um, you can go through the books of uh, well, the books of First and Second Chronicles to us, but the book of Chronicles, um, and actually get a really good overview of the nation through the lens of the kings. And we just got done wrapping up Hezekiah. And Hezekiah reigned from 715 B.C. to 687 B.C. And God told them that because of his faithfulness, he would not send him into exile. But they know the exile is coming. Now, the exile is where the enemy is going to come in, Wipe out Israel, the, the Jerusalem, I should say, the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. Destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take the people away. That's what they're expecting. And God looks at Hezekiah and says, look, you're okay. Because your heart is after me, it's not gonna happen in your lifetime. That's in 715 to 687 BC.
0: The Jews go into exile from Judah, in 586. That's over 100 years later. God says to Hezekiah,
1: You won't go in, but some of your descendants will. And 100, over 100 years later, it finally happens. I don't know about you. I don't like waiting, but I'd be okay waiting for something like that. Um, all of this is recorded in 2 Chronicles. Um, now, we're going to do a high speed kind of scan of what happens from Hezekiah. In 715 to 687, uh, we don't know the exact year when God said to Hezekiah, you know, you're, you're not going to go into exile. So we can't say this is exactly this many dates from here to here to here, but we know during his reign, God said, you won't go into exile. And then when we, and then we're going to see that they do go into exile. And I want to kind of go through Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles, so you can flip over to there and you can just kind of mark some people. If you have a study Bible, it may actually highlight the different Kings. Second Chronicles chapter 33 is where we're going to start. we're going to try to flip through some of these. So our first king that we talked about was was Hezekiah, right? Um, We talked about him 715 to 687 BC. That's Hezekiah. Now, he's a good king. Can you tell? He looks like a good king. He's a nice, happy guy. Uh, He was a good king. So he has no nose, but he's a good king. So you have Hezekiah. From the time of his death, I want you to see what happens through 2 Chronicles, so, so we'll kind of kind of plug right through them here. His son Manasseh was not a good guy, all right? He was a bad king. He reigned 55 years and did horrible things, so 2 so Chronicles chapter 33 is where you can read about him. Um, he was terrible. He took all the things that Hezekiah did, and Hezekiah tore down altars, got rid of idolatry and everything. Manasseh? He's like, yeah, dad didn't know what he was doing. I'm just going to start all over again. And he built up the idols. He built up the, the altars. He started sacrificing to other gods. He even like did horrible things in the temple of God. Really bad guy. So just a reminder, you can be a godly parent. It doesn't mean your kids will follow God. You can be a godly grandparent. It doesn't mean your kids will follow God. Each generation has to choose who they're going to serve. So. After him, we have in 2 in Chronicles thirty three twenty one 21, King Ammon, or Ammon. He's Manasseh's son. He reigns for two years. He's a bad dude also. And we keep going. Matter of fact, I should read, uh, let me read you about, about him. 2 uh, Chronicles 34 is where we see about, uh, I'm sorry, Josiah is the next one. Josiah is a good king. Josiah is a good guy. So Hezekiah is good. Manasseh is bad. Ammon is bad. Josiah is good. 31 year reign. 2nd Chronicles chapter 34. I want to read about Josiah with you. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. Talk about pressure. How many of you like knew what you wanted to do when you grow up at 8 years old? Like I know what I want to be when I grow up. You now some people yeah, you did really, Jason? Really? Like when I was 8 years old I wanted to be like a dinosaur or something like that. Like nobody knows what they want to be when they're 8 years old. You did? That's cool. I don't think he wanted to be king at eight years old, but he became king at eight years old. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. Does that sound familiar? It's almost the exact line we had about Hezekiah. Um, He did not turn aside to the right or to the left, and in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek God, the God of his ancestor David. And in the 12th year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Now, this story should just kind of ring in our ears. This is Hezekiah all over again. And I think that it's a reminder uh, when you think about, like, why why do we have the same story repeated over and over again in different people's lives? Why is it that we go through these cycles of a good king who follows God and then does everything for God and gets rid of all the bad stuff, and then a bad king who serves himself, another bad king who serves himself and worships idols, and then a good king who goes back to the way that it was. And, and I think we're reminded, this is the human condition, that every, every man, woman, and child has to make the decision for themselves who they're going to serve and how they're going to live and who's going to be their God, themselves or the creator God who made them. So as Josiah's people cleaned out the temple, by the way, they, they cleaned the whole temple out. It was disgusting. And they come across the book of the law that was given through Moses. And in 2 Chronicles 34, 19,
0: it said, when the king heard the word of the law, he tore his clothes, which was a sign of what? Repentance.
1: Then he commanded Hilkiah, a heichem son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, the court secretary, Shaphan and the king's servant, Asaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. So he reads the law and he says, oh man, we're doomed. (laughs) We haven't done what God says. So would you go inquire of, of God? Because by, at that time, to inquire of God, you had to go to see the prophets. They were the mouthpiece for God, the spokesperson for God. So go find out if God's going to just wipe us out right now or, or if there's any hope. So they go to this prophetess, Hulda, And she told the messengers that destruction was coming, but Second Chronicles 34, 26. Say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard, this is the Lord's declaration, I will indeed gather you to your ancestors, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. And then they reported this to the king. Again, that should sound really, really familiar if you were with us for the story of Hezekiah. Basically, what God said is, because you've followed me and made me your king, I won't wipe you out. I will let you have peace in your days. This is an important theme all throughout scriptures. Josiah does some really cool things. Um, He hosts a big national Passover feast like they've never seen in Israel before. Really cool. Um, And eventually he dies because that's what happens to people. Uh, He passes on after 31 years
0: and his son takes over. His son Jehoahaz. He lasts three months, right?
1: Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Now, Jehoahaz was a bad king, um, and he didn't last long. One of the interesting things about him is that it says in, in chapter 36 that he was appointed by the common
0: people. That's a transition. That's a shift. Prior to this, kings were appointed by the priests. So we don't
1: know if this was like an election type thing, but we also know that the priests were not involved in this one. The people said, we want him to be our king and they made him the king. He lasted three months. in um, after him, somebody else has to take the throne. So we get our next king, Eliakim. Now, Eliakim is the brother of Jehoahaz. He actually gets another name um, because why not? Uh, he was actually appointed by Necho, king of Egypt. So not only was he not appointed by a prophet, he was appointed by the king of Egypt. So kind of a puppet king, I think is the phrase that David used previously. Like, I'm going to appoint him and stick him in there. He lasts 11 years. He was another horrible guy. Um, And eventually, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, does that name sound familiar to you? Where does Nebuchadnezzar come from? What book? Comes from Babylon in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, attacks him, and takes this guy off to Babylon. So then you need another king. So you get his son. Now, I call him Jehoiachin, and David laughs at my pronunciation, but I mean, look at his chin. Um, So he's Jehoiachin. He lasts three months and 10 days, and then he's done.
0: And he was bad. So then... His brother takes over the throne,
1: um, Zedekiah, and he's appointed by Nebuchadnezzar,
0: the king of Babylon, and he lasts 11 years. So Second Chronicles chapter 36,
1: verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear allegiance by God. He became obstinate and hardened his heart against returning to the Lord, the God of Israel, and all the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Zedekiah kind of was like the, the final nail in the coffin for Judah. And when you look at this account, if you add all that up, you have approximately 110 years from the time of Hezekiah's death until the time that Judah goes into exile, about 110 years. That's a long time and God gave them chance after chance. Hezekiah was good. Josiah gave them hope. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And when you read that description of Zedekiah, you find that heart condition that keeps coming up over and over and over again in the prophets. And that heart condition is that one of pride and not being willing
0: to humble themselves before God. 2nd Chronicles 36, 15, um, says this, but the Lord, the God
1: of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy, so he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. he handed them all over to him, he took everything to Babylon, the articles of god's temple, large and small, the treasures of the lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials now this idea that God sent the prophets over and over and over again, and the people rejected them. You're going to hear this phrase when we get to the New Testament. You're going to hear Jesus talking about the fact that God sent the prophets and they wouldn't listen to the prophets, so they're certainly not going to listen to the Son of God. You're going to find the Apostle Paul's argument and the author of the book of Hebrews that, that people heard the prophets but didn't hear the prophets over
0: and over, and they became hardened in their heart. This is a common theme for the nation Israel that's being summarized here. But what happens next when the Chaldeans come in is something that
1: would just be devastating if you were a Jew. In 2 Chronicles 36, 19, Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple, tore down Jerusalem's wall, and burned all its palaces and destroyed all its valuable articles. So first, this king of the Chaldeans destroys all the young men who could fight, takes away the people, and then destroys the temple, the dwelling place of God, tears down the walls of Jerusalem and burns them, and then even destroys the palaces that people would live in, the kings would live in. Remember Solomon, he built the temple, then he built this wonderful palace, gone. This city whose walls were actually fortified through Hezekiah, gone. Everything destroyed and leveled. It wasn't just that he went in and said, I'll take some of the people with me. He raised
0: it. It was history. Just totally gone. In verse 20, it goes on to say,
1: he deported those who escaped by the sword to Babylon and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until seventy years were fulfilled. Now I'm not going to get into the land enjoying its Sabbath rest, but that's actually goes—it's it's a great prophecy about how the Jews had actually ignored the the um, resting of the land, the way they were supposed to, and that God was actually going to punish Israel so the land could have rest because they were being ignorant um, of God's law. It's pretty cool. That's a whole other. Subject. I don't want to get into that too much, but the seventy years. This message of Jeremiah. and We covered Jeremiah a little bit, but there's this line in Jeremiah chapter twenty-five, eleven: "This whole land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for
0: seventy years." Now Jeremiah proclaimed this message. His ministry
1: was leading up to the Babylonian exile. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in, his ministry was leading up to that, and he prophesied before it that 70 years, they would be under the, I guess, the lordship of Babylon. Um, Now, the northern kingdom, they were taken in 722. Um, So they had been in exile for about 136 years already. And this is another 70 on top of that. So it's going to be over 200 years that the Northern Kingdom is going to be in exile. This is talking about Judah and Israel that's going to be in exile here. Um, Now, if you've been tracking with the prophets, you should be familiar with this idea of punishment and hope. The fact that they go hand in hand. It's not that God is just looking to be mean. It's that God has rules that God has laws, and the people were committed to obeying, them. they even agreed to, of their own free will, to be God's people. And they were told if they didn't do certain things, that God would bring about this punishment. But the purpose of the punishment was not to wipe them out.
0: He'd already done that once. That was the flood. Said he wouldn't do that again. But it was for hope, for a future.
1: And when we did study the book of Jeremiah, we came to one of those coffee mug verses. You know what I mean by coffee mug verse? You know, when you go to the store and you see the little Bible verse mugs and they have a, the, Bible, the mug, coffee mugs with a little Bible verse on them or the magnets on your fridge kind of thing. Uh, we came to one of those and it's in, it's in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you And I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Here's the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Sound familiar now? You get to that part, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. This is after, (laughs) this is coming after 70 years. So you're going to be gone for 70 years. But let me tell you, I'm not going to destroy you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you.
0: This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. So God is saying, listen, 70 years is going to pass, and I'm going to bring you back.
1: There's an end. You can count the years. It's going to happen. It's meant to give a hope. And I don't know if you caught the words, but there's attend, confirm, restore, well-being, future, hope. Matter of fact, the word restore shows up three times. God's punishment is meant to bring restoration. There are times I think that we look at God's punishment or when bad things happen and we're like, God is punishing me. You have to understand that God has the right to punish us if we're being disobedient, but his goal is always restoration. It's always to refine. It's always to draw
0: us to him. He said, I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. That's where we pick up with the book of Ezra. It's also where you pick up at the end of 2 Chronicles.
1: Now, we have volumes of books. All of our books are in one Bible, right? You, you didn't have that back then. You had scrolls. And 2 Chronicles ends with a certain phrase, and the same phrase is repeated in the book of Ezra. And that's like the literary cue that this book is connected to this book. And where this one ends, this one picks up. Uh, picks up. So it's that, that connecting. We, we get this. How many of you watch, uh, binge watch stuff on Netflix, right? So you watch your TV show on Netflix, you get done with one episode, you go to the next episode, and it says previously on, right? And then they, they show you some of the scenes. they are like, okay, this connects to this. I'm going to take you into the next part of the story. It's kind of what the Bible authors did here, only in much greater detail. They were exact uh, in so many ways and the way they presented it. So I'm going to read to you the end of 2 Chronicles, and then I'm going to take you to Ezra, which is the book
0: we're going to be in for a little while. Um, going forward, Second Chronicles thirty six twenty two. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord
1: spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says: "The Lord, the God of the heavens." has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. So here's Cyrus, king of Persia, making an announcement about what God is telling him. So here's a pagan king saying, God told me to do this. It's Pretty
0: cool. Go to Ezra chapter one, and we'll read verses one through four. In the first year
1: of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout the entire kingdom and to put it in writing. And this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. Does
0: this sound familiar? And we're like word for word at this point. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the
1: kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted um, by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem.
0: So Cyrus says, Here's the decree.
1: God's given me everything. God's appointed me to build them a temple. If you want to go back, if you're from Judah and you want to go back, you can go back. And matter of fact, the people around you, your neighbors, just start giving them gold. Give them gold, silver, livestock, whatever they need, a free will offering to their God. You send them with stuff. I'm gonna send stuff. He sends a bunch of stuff from the temple. We're gonna send them back so that they can worship their God and rebuild their temple.
0: This is from a pagan king. It's pretty cool. Um. So, yeah, David. Oh, we're supposedly
2: done with the Book of Isaiah, right? Yes. But Since we uh-huh. were just there, you know, we've got to bring up how Isaiah actually did talk about this happening and name Cyrus by name in chapter forty-five of Isaiah. Because that's quite a claim for, like you said, a pagan king to be ma- to be making that all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to him. And yes, it's, you know, in Ezra, it's kind of saying it's to fulfill what Jeremiah said. But in Isaiah, we kind of have this claim being corroborated in chapter actually starts in chapter 44. um, God calls Cyrus his shepherd. um, He will fulfill all my pleasure and says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And this is Isaiah talking about how after all of the destruction, you know, it will be rebuilt. And chapter 45, it says, Yahweh says this to Cyrus, his anointed, which is the word Messiah. (laughs) So he actually calls this pagan king his Messiah, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings to open doors before him. And even city gates will not be shut. And it goes on and on for like the entire rest of that chapter to talk about all the crazy riches and, and secrets that will be revealed to Cyrus and all these kingdoms being handed over to him. Um, it's pretty extravagant. So just a pretty cool cross-reference to
1: see how Isaiah prophesied how all of that was going to happen. Yeah, so if you're tuning in online, that was David. He misses preaching, apparently. And um, wanted to tie us into the book of Isaiah. It's a great chapter. It really is. Um, I don't remember... Other than David, any king of Israel being called the anointed one. And yet here's Cyrus, king of Persia, being referred to as the anointed one, the Messiah of God, not even from the people of God. And it's just, it's like your head just explodes when you're like, wait a minute, this can't happen. He can't, be, he can't really mean this. And he said, if you read Isaiah chapter 44, 45, and even on, you'll read about how God says he's going to wipe out all the enemies of Cyrus and he's going to make them successful. This declaration. Of Cyrus in Ezra chapter one, is Cyrus acknowledging that God has done? Here's a pagan king, and you mentioned you, you, you read in Ezra where he says, "Go back to Jerusalem, where God is from, where that God is from, where Israel's God lives." Uh, you've got to understand in pagan cultures, gods were regional and belonged in certain lands, the, so they had a territory. So it would not be uncommon for him to say, "That's." That's the God of this region. So go back to that region where you can worship the, that God, because that's where that God is from. Uh, but he acknowledges Yahweh. He even calls him Yahweh, which there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that was the original words or the person who wrote down the book of Ezra might have actually like just interpreted that through the lens of a Jewish lens. But he actually refers to him as Yahweh. Go and worship Yahweh. Yahweh God has given me
0: all of these kingdoms of the earth, he says. Um, so a couple things I think we really need to, to notice. Cyrus was hearing the voice of God. He was not a prophet. Interesting. The king of Persia,
1: who was, who was commissioned um, to build The house of Yahweh was a man of war. Cyrus says that God told him to rebuild the temple, and yet David, a man after God's own heart, was not allowed to rebuild the temple. Now, I don't think Cyrus had his hands directly involved like David would have, and perhaps that's the only distinction between the two. But here's a pagan king saying, God has told me to rebuild his temple, and David couldn't even do that. Solomon had to do it. The king of Persia acknowledged God's sovereignty over all the kingdoms of the earth which is something the kings of Israel refused to do. When we read about why they were taken into captivity and why Babylon came and wiped out, because their hearts became hard and they became arrogant, and they became proud and they refused to acknowledge God. And here's the king of Persia going, yep, God gave it to me.
0: I mean, he just gets it, he gets it. Um, now, the king of Persia did something else unique though.
1: He let the people go back to his land. So when you look at, the Assyrians, they took the Israelites into Assyria. When you look at the Babylonians, they, took the, they put, took the Israelites into Babylon. That's where we have the book of Daniel. This guy says, you know what? Go home. Go back and worship your God. Go back to your land. Go back to your crops. This is a different style of leadership than we've seen in these kingdom-conquering world right now. It's just totally different. He lets them go back. Um, the king of Persia helped fund the building of the temple. Not only does he give resources, but he gives commands for the people to give resources. And not just enough resources to build the temple, but enough resources to offer free will offerings to God. Now, free will offerings, something unique to the Jews. So here's this king of Persia saying, Hey, give them enough so they can also offer their offerings. He knew about their offerings. They give free will offerings. Now, a lot of people try to take this passage in Ezra and connect it back to Exodus. Remember what happened in Exodus? There's Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. God sent the plagues, the death. They have the Passover. They leave. They plunder the people because the people are afraid of God and afraid that they'll die. So they plunder the people and they leave and they're chased. There's really not great parallels between the Exodus story and Ezra, because in Exodus, you had a king who didn't listen to God and God hardened his heart. In Ezra, you have a king who God blessed and spoke to. In in the Exodus, you have a people who are afraid of God giving gifts to the Israelites. In Ezra, you have the people being commanded by a king to give gifts to bless them, not out of fear. In Exodus, you had a Pharaoh that would not let the people go and worship God. And in Ezra, you have a king that says, go and worship your God. So there's really not a ton of parallels between these two to make them like a a type of. But it's a great illustration of how God can take pagan kings, how God can take anybody and either use them as objects of destruction like Pharaoh
0: or objects of blessing like Cyrus. So we enter this new era or this new age
1: where the Jews are allowed to go back to their homeland to live in their property, to worship their God, to serve in their temple. But they're still the subjects of Persia. They're no longer their own kingdom. They still have a king they have to serve. Now, when God made a promise to Abraham about becoming a great nation. He said, you'll be a light to the world. Where initially they were a light by the way that they lived separate from the rest of the world, now they're going to be scattered and live among the other nations, underneath the leadership of other nations,
0: but they still have a calling to be the light to the world through this new reality. So what happens? Ezra chapter 1, verse 5.
1: So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God has roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables. In addition to all that, was given a freewill offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had them placed in the house of his God's. So, King Cyrus of Persia had them brought under the supervision of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar. It's just a great name. Somebody should name their kid that Um, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory, and it goes into the inventory, all the gold and everything else. And it was all brought out of Jerusalem to Babylon, and now it's going from Babylon back to
0: Jerusalem. So, did you notice who goes back? Did all of Israel go back? No. Two tribes. Benjamin and Judah, the two
1: southern tribes. The two that waited until the Babylonians came, whose promise was 70 years, the northern the northern kingdoms are still in exile. The southern tribes go back along with the Levites and the priests. The Levites didn't own property. They were there for the, the temple. Um, so the ten northern tribes are still hanging out, waiting. And I think there's an interesting phrase here. The people who went back had one characteristic in common. It wasn't their occupation. It wasn't where in the city they lived. Their one thing in common that they had was it was everyone
0: whose spirit God had roused. To me, the glimmer of hope in this is that you have a group of people who are actually listening to God now. There's a shift in their heart.
1: Where they were arrogant and against God, 70 years later, God had put it in the spirit, his spirit in them to want them, for them to want, excuse me, to go back to Jerusalem. There's only one way that anything great is ever done for God. And it's when God's people are prompted by God's spirit to do what God wants. God stirred the heart of Cyrus. God stirred the heart of the people. God orchestrated the events and moved in the lives of humans. And so the journey to Jerusalem began, over 900 miles on foot, going back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Maybe that's why some of them didn't go back. I don't know. That's a long trip. How many of you like long trips? But see, now you do long trips now, and you have tablets, and you have, you know, you have games. We used to have those little pocket games with the bat, you know, like the football pocket game with a little blip that kind of went. How many of you remember those, right? Yeah, I wish they still, do they still have those out? I want one of those bats. The football one was great. That's a. What's that? There's an app for that. There's got to be an app for that. Nowadays, you have all these distractions. But could you imagine being on foot, carrying your possessions, and going over 900 miles to get back home? That would be a rough trip. Now, I asked David to read chapter two of the book of Ezra for us, but um, we both decided he was going to read it. Yeah, I, we both decided it wouldn't be beneficial, uh, though it would be entertaining. It's a list of all the names of the people who went back. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with Bible names. David's been enjoying it. Um, he actually pulled out like the Hebrew transliterations of them and was reading them to me. Did a great job. Um, but they're only from Judah, Benjamin and the Levites. Some things to notice about this list in chapter two that I think is pretty amazing. 4,000 priests go
0: back. That's a lot of priests. 4,000 priests go back. 74 Levites go back.
1: So you're like, oh, what does that mean? That's like having 4,000 commissioned and non-commissioned officers and 74 soldiers like having 4,000 officers and 74 soldiers. That would make no sense whatsoever, right? I mean, the Levites were there to help the priests
0: in their duties. They got 74 of them. (laughs) That just blows my mind. Um, There were more singers
1: than there were servants. There was almost twice as many gatekeepers as there were Levites. People who just like take care of the gates um, than people who were serving in the temple. Uh, There's also some of the priests couldn't serve because they couldn't prove their ancestry. It's an interesting fact that they bring out. If you could not prove that you were from the line of Aaron, you couldn't serve as a priest. And so there's some interesting dialogue back and forth about what they should do with these people um, until they can consult, um, have a priest that can consult God for them. You're going to find that the genealogy is very important All the way through the Jewish history, because of the promises that God made to Abraham and to Moses and to David, the covenants, and and also to Aaron and the priesthood. You're going to see that when we hit the book of Matthew um, a little bit later on this year. So, how many people went back? So, it says a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah, in addition to 7,337 servants, 200 singers, both men and women. Yeah, you caught that three times as many singers as there were Levites, too. Um, so this is how many returned. So what's that total? That's a total of about 49,897 people. And when you think of the fact that the nation of Israel was millions of people, and that's all that went back to, it's a pretty small group, isn't it? But let me give you some numbers to help you realize this. The population of Fort Drum is 13,000. Population of Watertown, 25,000, Carthage, 3,000, Lowville, 3,000, Crogan, 600, um, Black River, 1,300, Calcium, 3,500. If you add up all of those regions, it's 49,400 people. That's still less than the number of people that went back. So if you think of all the people that live here in upstate New York in our immediate region, that's approximately the number of people who left who left uh, Babylon and Persia and went back to Jerusalem. It's a large number, but it's a small
0: representation of the nation. So chapter two, verse 68. After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave free will offerings
1: for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. And based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. So we end chapter two with a very mixed bag of emotions. There must have been joy in being able to leave Babylon and go home. You know what it's like to go home? Yeah, there's something about being home. But imagine going home and the things that once brought you peace, the things that once brought you joy, the things that were once significant in your life are all gone. Imagine walking into Jerusalem past the gates that were burned down and the walls that were torn down, where once you had to get through the gate that opened for you to walk in, now you can just walk over the rubble. Imagine walking past the temple and just seeing it just leveled
0: and burned. Nothing left. And the palace of the kings, gone. The whole town destroyed. So you go back to home, but home is gone. Home is wiped out. How disheartening to see the splendor of Jerusalem in pieces. The Jews returned to their land to see a scarred, tarnished version
1: of an original. The original beauty was gone forever, but there is a beauty that can even rise out of the ashes. The beauty that will come will not be the same as the original beauty,
0: yet it will be beautiful. And that beauty will point to another hope that God
1: has promised that he will rebuild the city new all over again. He will rebuild the temple new all over again, and it will have a greater splendor than it once had someday when God makes all things new again. And this is a glimpse, this time in Ezra is a glimpse into the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big picture story of God. Because as God's creation, we were created in the image of God to be the reflection of God,
0: untarnished, beautiful, not just good, but very good. And because of sin, we've been scarred and burned.
1: We live in a a world that tries to rebuild that image but can only do it so well and only to a certain point. We live in lives in, in our human bodies and in this world as a tarnished reflection of the original design but also with the future hope because we know that God one day will recreate it all new again. So, even in this return in Ezra, you have a picture of what God is doing with all of creation, not just with his city. Because God doesn't reside in cities, he resides in people. And God's kingdom is not about a physical location.
0: So, as we come to the book of Ezra, what have we learned? Well, we haven't learned anything new, honestly. It's that rerun story.
1: I guess Laura and I were kind of a little bit disheartened over Christmas because we wanted to watch Christmas movies. And it seems like as you skip through Christmas movies or the Hallmark Channel or whatever, you keep finding the same story with a different title. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I don't know how many movies we had that had the word prince in it. You know, Christmas with a prince, my Christmas prince. It's like, really? So you get the same story over and over. So this is kind of the nation Israel. It's the same story over and over again with just a couple new
0: characters. And you're thinking, wouldn't they get it by now? Well, no, we don't. (laughs) We haven't learned anything
1: new. What we're reminded of is that God is in control of all things, including all earthly kingdoms. All earthly
0: kingdoms. Yes, as Americans, we have the right to vote, but I have news for you. God is in control. God can use the most
1: unlikely people to accomplish his plans. That's not a new method message. That's, that's an old message, and God is still doing it. God is merciful and compassionate. Again, not a new message. He will punish, but he chooses
0: to show mercy when people repent. The message is that God keeps his promises. Again, not
1: a new message at all. And that every man, woman, and child must choose for themselves whom they will serve. There is no passing it along like an inheritance.
0: And I want to say this, parents. Your children will have to choose for themselves someday. Some of them will not choose the way that you wish. And it will break your heart and drive you to your knees in prayer. But you cannot make your children love God the way you do but you can lift them up before God, which is what we need to do. And some of
1: them will choose to follow God. Some of them will take hard road and some an easy road.
0: But your children must choose for themselves someday whom they will serve. So I want to go back to this delay as we wrap up our time together. So God told Hezekiah,
1: I'm going to let you live in peace, and then I'm going to take you into exile as
0: a nation. And 110 years later, it happens. There are many times in God's word where we read about delays, where God
1: chooses to act, but In a different timeline than what we might think. If we're reading the story of Hezekiah, we're thinking, okay, God's going to let him live, and then great, his son's going to come in. Manasseh's a bad guy. Okay, this is where God's going to take him into exile. Nope. Manasseh does his horrible stuff. His son does some horrible stuff. Oh, Josiah shows up. Josiah gets a message. I'm going to let you live to the end of your days, be with your ancestors, and then I'm going to take care of Judah, and we're going to wipe him out, put him into exile. And then there's king after king after king after king of just bad kings, and God doesn't act.
0: You're like, why hasn't God acted? Have you ever seen an injustice and wondered, why hasn't God acted? (laughs) God gave Israel chance after chance after chance to repent. Gave
1: them time and more time to repent. So they, because they did not, they faced his judgment with hopes that they would return to
0: him. I want you to understand that God still shows the same kind of mercy today. Someday, perhaps very soon, our Savior Jesus is going to return. And when he does, God will judge
1: all peoples and all nations. He said he would return about 2,000 years ago. Why the delay? Why 2,000 years? I mean, Jesus was on
0: this earth, and he said to his disciples, I'm going. But I'm going to come back. I bet they were thinking, I can't wait. 2,000 years later, he's still not here. Why the delay? 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord isn't really
1: slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be
0: destroyed, but he wants everyone. repent. Do you see how that message from Peter is the message of
1: the exile? It's the message of the prophets. It's the message of God all through scriptures. Some people listening to this message will be stubborn like Israel. Yeah, I know that God wants to be in control, um, but I'm going to do things on my own. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to believe that I'm a better God than he is, Others will be like Hezekiah and Josiah, choosing to follow God who created
0: us and enjoy the blessing of knowing God and being used by God, seeing his goodness and not his wrath. And we're reminded that God's delays are because still today, God's desire is for people made in his image to know him personally.
1: And he gives us every chance to do that. Each generation, every man, woman, and child must choose to follow God for themselves. And it's as easy as allowing him to be king in your life, submitting to his rule and his rules and entering his kingdom
0: by accepting the gift of forgiveness through the sacrifice he made in giving the son of the king for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. That we don't have to guess or doubt or wonder. You don't change. And your heart hasn't changed. Father, we admit that we bounce back and forth between the good king and the bad king mode where
1: Sometimes we're willing to follow your lead and submit to your leadership, and other times we try to rule on our own. Father, forgive us
0: for the times that we choose to make ourselves out to be God and not to follow you. Father, help us to be humble, that as we hear your word and as we're reminded of your greatness, help us not to become proud or arrogant but to submit to you, to trust you. Father, I pray that for each person that's listening today, that they would choose to make you king, that you would stir their spirit to want to be with you,
1: that you would stir their hearts to want to follow you, to experience
0: your blessing, not the removal of all problems, Not the promise of everything being okay, but the promise of your presence and your relationship and your forgiveness. We pray this and thank you for those of us that have experienced it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we actually got you into the book of Ezra. Congratulations.
1: Um, We kind of went there through Chronicles. Lord willing, next week, David's going to take us into the rebuilding of the temple and some of the lessons that we see in that uh, as we continue in Ezra uh, with you. And then uh, just, what's that? Lord and Eden willing. That's right. I'm on standby. Uh, Just so that you do know also, um, if uh, over the next several weeks, it may be a little bit uh, harder to get a hold of David. Uh, We are expecting and wanting him to be able to quarantine and kind of uh, distance so next week he may just kind of run in and hang up on the stage and then run out. Um, the, the goal is to make sure that he can be in the hospital uh, when Ellie's ready. And so we appreciate his being here, but recognize that we're going to appreciate him not being here too. And Ellie will appreciate it even more that he's able to be there. So, uh, so please be uh, understanding. We thank
0: you for your understanding in that, in that matter. So uh, I think that's it. If uh, you're you're free to go if you have questions you're welcome to ask